today we're going to end our series through the book of Second Corinthians, and it feels like we've been it forever. This is like sermon 837 or whatever, and it's only been 22 weeks. And it doesn't sound long if you say it fast, but we've been, we've been walking through the book of Second Corinthians, and then today we're going to end that, and next week we start going through the book of Ruth. It is, it is unbelievable what God has for us. Do not miss it. I, I have been excited to preach this series in the book of Ruth for a very long time now, and so we'll start that journey together. And... Uh, but today, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, you can t- turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to finish the whole chapter, all 13 verses today. And uh, before we do, let me just say a, just a little bit of a disclaimer. We're going to talk about today, Paul's going to tell us how to stand for the truth or, or how to confront someone. And, and so here's my fear. Whenever, whenever, whenever I start talking about truth and confrontation and all that kind of stuff that comes with it, here, here's my concern. For some of you that have a, a critical spirit, that's not a spiritual gift, by the way, uh, but for some of you are some that have a critical spirit, you'll come to this passage and you'll look at it and you'll say, right, this confirms of how I'm supposed to just to critique everybody and criticize everybody and, and make life difficult for everybody around them and let them know where they don't measure up and how they could do better and that whole deal. That is not Paul's point at all. Please do not get that out of this message. Paul is talking about standing for truth and speaking truth into someone's life. But at the same time, he says it has to be balanced. It has to be balanced with love. It has to be balanced with compassion. So please do not get that out of this. We're going to look at this scripture together. And Paul has four principles of how, to, how do we confront in love? How do we confront the truth? And, and here a while back, I was, uh, I was headed over to Walking Stick and to, to play golf uh, one evening with some, some guys from our church. Uh, because whenever my prayer life is weak, I just go play golf because it always strengthens my prayer life because, you know, like don't hit the house, don't hit the cars and all that other stuff. And so I'm on my way to Walking Stick, I-25 northbound. I don't know why God gives me illustrations in driving. I don't know if it's the way I drive or what happens, but I'm northbound I-25 about at 29th Street. I look way ahead of me. And fortunately, I saw this coming in plenty of time to to, to respond. And this car was on the northbound side, but he was going southbound. And so this car was coming at me, is in the outside lane. And so I saw him, and, and, and you know, whenever you see something that just isn't supposed to happen, you kind of look and you're like, am I, am I seeing that correct? And is, is he really headed for me? And so, so I, I realized he was. And so me and along with other, a lot of other cars, we began to change lanes and, and, and get out of his lane. And He's just driving with his family like it's no big deal. And so he's coming, and so I reach over and grab my cell phone, and I call the comm center at, at, at the police department. And, and so, uh, so I tell him, I says, you know what? You, you've got a guy headed the wrong way on I-25. Here's the mile marker that he's at. You may want to do something about this or send some paramedics and, you know, kind of be proactive. And, and so, uh, and I did that. I did that because I had concern for him, right? I mean, I, con- I had concern for him that obviously something is wrong. It's kind of obvious when, when you're going upstream. And so, so I had concern for him, but it wasn't only for him. I had concern for the people that he may hit. I mean, the people that may not be as fortunate as me and get enough advance warning so they can get out of the way. And so I, I felt it was my obligation to speak the truth and to say this isn't right. And so there's times in life as believers that Paul and the scriptures instruct us that there are times that we have to speak truth into someone's life. This comes and should, be, should come out of a motivation because we love them and care for them. 
But it also should come as a motivation that we're concerned for maybe the people that they'll crash into or the, 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 the disaster that's, that's happening because if they continue on that way, things aren't going to end well for them. And so that's the, that's the motivation. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul gives us a couple of principles. And, and if you have your Bibles, you can, you can turn there. And the first principle that he has for us this is that, is that truth requires facts. If you're going to speak truth into someone's life, if you're going to confront someone, truth requires, well, we just got to understand this this morning, truth requires facts. Fact is, Paul said, give you some comfort, let me just know, let, let me help you understand how I'm going to confront you. I'm going to confront you with the facts. We'll read, let's just do that. Let's read the verse. Here's, here's what he says. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. In fact, this will be the last time. This is the last time that he had a conversation with him, and he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul understood the Old Testament and Paul understood what the law said and what Deuteronomy said. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy tells us that if you're going to confront someone, that you must have two witnesses. The New Testament tells us this, that if you're going to confront a leader, uh, if you're going to confront an elder, then it must be accompanied. The, the testimony must be with two or more witnesses so what paul was telling them was this paul was saying guys i want to give you some comfort i'm not going to confront you based upon gossip i'm not going to confront you based upon rumor i'm not going to conf confront you based upon hearsay and what everybody else is saying oh and guess what i'm not even going to confront you out of my perception see that's a danger that our perception can become our reality i'm not even confronting you out of that i here's here's another one Guys, I'm not even confronting you out of my preferences. I'm going to confront you from the truth. See, truth, for healing to take place in relationships, truth requires facts. Paul's saying, I'm not going off of gossip. If we spread the good news like we spread gossip, we'd change this world. If we had the same motivation, the same intensity of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ that many of us have of spreading gossip, we would change this world. And Paul is saying, I'm going to confront you. But it's in fact that he says, he says, so, so either, either, Prove it or disprove it. If you disprove it, reject it and get it out of here because I'm not going to confront you over that. See, there is a danger in our life when we, when we go where we do not belong, when we acquire information that is not ours to have because we cannot confront someone. Let me just tell you. You ever had someone walk up to you and say, hey, I want to tell you something about such and such but you, you got to promise you can't do anything about it you got to promise me that will destroy you every time it will wipe you out when someone tells you I'm going to give you information about someone it can be a child it can be, it can be a, a spouse it can be a friend it can be a relationship and I'm going to give you information about them, but I, I, I just need to tell you. And I can't have you do anything about it because they, like, they don't know I'm not supposed to be telling you. And I don't want them to know 
I don't want them to know I told you. Listen, I'm telling you, I have learned in my life that when someone comes up to me, and I don't care who it is, and says, I need to tell you something, but guess what? I don't want you to do anything about it. I stop them right there. That information will destroy you. It will wipe. You will lay at night awake, asleep. You can't sleep. You're worried about that individual because you have information that you cannot do anything about. Information that you gain that, that you cannot use will destroy you in life. Think of how many times in life that we have begged someone, say, please, please just tell me about whatever. Just, I, I can handle it. I can handle it. Just tell me. And then they tell us and we realize, I can't handle it because I can't do anything about it. I, I, I can't even, I can't even res respond. See, when we scratch and claw and we get information out of the dirt from gossip and hearsay and rumor and preferences and all that other junk. We never, we never get the grace that accompanies truth. In some ways, it's, it's a lack of trust of God because I need to know this information like God doesn't. So the first thing that Paul says when we, when we have those times and we need, to confront, we need to confront with the truth, Paul lets us know about this issue of the truth, and the truth requires facts, not gossip, rumor, hearsay, preferences, perception, or, or, or your perception. It's the truth. The second thing is this. Truth requires, truth requires a confrontation. I mean, if you're going to stand for the truth, and you... Have the truth requires, watch this, Paul goes on, verse 2. I warned those who sinned before all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. You know what's happening to Paul, and this may have happened to you, and it's happened to me in the past, where you confront someone, and, and you know what they were doing with Paul? Paul confronted them, and they responded back and says, Who are you to confront me? I know your life. I know, I know your decisions. Paul, you, you're not very impressive in speech. I mean, there's some super apostles. They're much more uh, articulate than you. They got a lot more charisma than you. I mean, those are some powerful guys. And, and, and we know you're not that smart. We know you're not that educated. Uh, oh, and Paul, we know your life before you met Christ. Weren't you the one that was killing Christians? I mean, weren't you that guy that was going into the church and kill, killing Christians? And see, here's what happens when you confront someone and they don't want healing in their life or they don't want to take responsibility for their action, they will always turn on you and they will always point it back at you and they will always bring your past up and try to disqualify you. And this is what happened with Paul. Listen, when people are uncomfortable with the truth, when you confront someone with the truth and the facts, and there's not any gossip, there's not any hearsay, and if they don't want to deal with it, the only thing they can do is point back at you and try to disqualify you. This is what they're doing with Paul. Verse uh, uh, 3, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Paul is responding by saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm confronting you with the truth. I'm not confronting you with, with me and my perception. I'm confronting you by the, with the truth. And by the way, the truth is the word of God. And I'm confronting you with that. I mean, I mean, when we stand and when we confront, we should be using the word of God as saying, I'm concerned about And here's why. I mean, I hate uh, uh, bumper sticker theology. I mean, most Christian bumper stickers I see make me mad. 
Maybe that's unchristian. I don't know. But it just makes me mad. And there's a bumper sticker that goes goes and says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Listen, it's God's word. God's word is true whether you believe it or not. You believing God's word does not make it true. God's word is true whether you believe it or not. It doesn't settle it just because you believe it, I believe it. It settles it because it's his word and it's truth. And it can speak into your life. And he goes on and he says, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you and me, and we live with him and by the power of the God. And so, so they're telling Paul, who are, who are you to tell us how to live? I could have done that with that guy that was going southbound on the northbound side. I mean, I could have seen him coming, and he was there with his whole family and driving, and I could have said, you know what? Who am I to call the comm center? After all, I've got a few tickets. I think they're still on my record, but I've had a few tickets. And so after all, I got a few tickets on my record. You know what? I've cut some people off accidentally in case it was you. Uh, uh, but I, I, you know what? I've rolled through some stop signs, treated them like a yield sign. There may be a few red lights that I've run. I'm thankful there were no cameras and all of that other stuff. And so, so I could have gone through and says, wait a minute. I'm not the greatest driver myself. Who am I to tell this guy he's going the wrong way? And can I tell you, that's what keeps a lot of you from confronting people in your relationships and around you. That keeps a lot of parents from speaking truth into their kids' lives because they say, you know what, I know how my life was. I know what my life was like in high school. I know what it was like in college. And, and I know some of the decisions that I've made in my life. Who, who, who am I? Who am I to speak truth into my life? And so there's a lot of people that feel like their life, their past disqualifies them from speaking truth into someone's life. And that's why Paul says, well, wait a minute. I'm not confronting you out of my perfection I'm not confronting you out of my, I mean, I've made mistakes. I haven't been perfect. I am confronting you with the word of God that is pure and that is true. And it's the word of God whether you believe it or not. And, he go, and Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's true. John said this, Jesus actually said, says, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's the truth that sets you free. And what Paul was saying, it's with our knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that when we see men and women and boys and girls headed the wrong way in life, and we're concerned about them, and we're concerned about those that they will crash into, that we have an obligation to speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love and Truth is not base. See, truth is not relative. It's absolute. And truth is not out of your perception. It's not out of your experiences. It's not experiential. And when we confront people out of truth, out of His Word, we can stand firm on that. And he goes on and he says, and uh, what, what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, he says, says, you're the salt of the earth. He's talking to believers. And, and so the word earth is kind of big and it's sometimes kind of hard for us to get our mind around. So let's just make it personal for a second. Jesus would say to you, you're the salt of your family. 
You're the salt of your children. You're the salt of your profession. You're the salt of your community. That's why we're so motivated here, and that's why I'm so proud of you guys about whenever we go off-site, many of you volunteer to help us, and we all go together. Man, it was unbelievable what took place in Memorial Hall, whether it was Lincoln Brewster or, or, or Easter services. And, man, we, we watched lives being changed in that place. Fellowship of the Rockies is the salt of this community. And we're the salt of the world as well. And you, as a believer, you're the salt in your family. You're the salt in your relationship. And you and I have an obligation to speak the truth, speak the truth in love, not based upon gossip and rumor and hearsay and all that other stuff. And he goes on and he says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. You're the light of your family. You're the light of your relationships. You're the light of the community. You're the light of your, your profession. You're, you're the light of the relationships as you go about your day. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And Paul is trying to help them understand that this issue of truth is based upon fact, not rumor, not gossip, not hearsay. And it requires a confrontation. It requires healing. The third thing is this, is truth requires integrity. Truth requires integrity in life. The word integrity means that your life is all integrated into one. To where you come to the point and you don't have your, 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 your sports life over here and your professional life over here and your, your, your buddy's life over here and then all of a sudden you've got your church life over here and, and, and they don't all meet. No, integrity means that it's all integrated into one. Integrity is this. You're the same regardless of the circles in which you travel. That's what Paul was, watch this, verse 5, examine, examine yourselves. You know the first thing I did, I mean it may sound crazy, but the first thing I did when I saw that driver coming at me on I-25, I made sure I was on the right side of the road. <laughs> I mean there was something about that when he's coming at me, I had to first examine myself and make sure, am I on the right side of the road? And Paul is saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You are spending all your time, you, you know this, there's people and all they do is they examine everybody else but themselves. And so Paul is going, wait a minute, you're spending all of your time and you're judging me and you're gossiping about me and you're talking about me. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether, and then he goes deep, to see whether you're in the faith. These are sobering words. But I think it's so important. We've got to know we're in the faith. We've got to know that we've got a relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got to know. I mean, Scripture says that His Spirit will bear witness with our spirit if, if we're in Christ and we're in the faith. And then he goes on and he says, test yourselves. First John, Second John says, you know what, there, there's a test. There should be evidence in your life. It's not, listen, it is way more than just believing in God. James says the demons believe in God, but we're not going to see them in heaven because they haven't submitted their life to him. It's more than just believing in God. He says, test yourself. And are there some evidence in your life that you are in Christ, that you are a believer? Do you have a desire for his word? Do you have a desire to live differently? Do you have a desire to submit to him? Do you have a desire to connect with him and, and walk with him at a deeper level? 
I mean, 1 John, I'm telling you, gives you the list of how to know that you're in Christ. Is there conviction in sin? Does something happen inside of you to where you're just messed up now that even, you know, you can't even enjoy sin anymore? Because once you're in Christ, there's a conviction that comes as a result of that. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Now watch this. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? I do believe there are some believers, and they do not understand that Jesus Christ lives in you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you live life in power? Are you spirit-empowered in your life? Are you able to forgive that you weren't never able to do? Are you able to live life at a different level? Do you understand that Jesus Christ lives within you? God. And it should give you power in life, and it should give you power in relationships. And there should be, a, there should be something different about you. You know what? I think it's a sad commentary on Christians when non-believers look into our life and say, your life makes perfectly good sense to me. We should be living life in such a way that non-believers are saying, I don't understand how someone can love like that. I don't understand how someone can forgive like that. I don't understand how someone can trust a God like you trust him. It's a sad commentary when our life as believers looks just like the rest of the world and we make decisions just like them. And so Paul says, you know, test yourselves and make sure that, and do you not understand that Christ lives in you? Unless, of course, you fail to meet the test. Unless, of course, that you really don't know him. Unless, of course, it's just kind of a belief system to you. But it's not something that is deep within you. Matthew 7, 4 and 5, Jesus says, says, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? If I was traveling southbound on the northbound side with that guy, and we're driving side by side, I would not have the right to pick up my cell phone and call the comm center. Say, guys, you got a, you got a guy over here. And he's going the wrong way. A lot of people do that, right? Why, why is it in life that a lot of people, the thing that they, the, the problem that they have in their life, the inadequacies, the, the behavior, whatever, they criticize that in everybody else's life and they can't see what's going on in their life? It's because they're so busy examining everybody else's life. And, and Jesus says, you know, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Paul was telling the Corinthians, he says, man, you're so focused on me. It's a dangerous thing when you examine me and you're not even examining your, your life. There are so many people that they are so focused on everybody around them. that they can't see their life and the things that need to change. And in other words, Paul is saying, and don't, don't, evi don't evaluate the performances of others. You know, there's people that come to church all the time and they evaluate the church like it's a performance. This isn't a performance. We are not performance-driven in this church. We are spirit 
driven. And there are people that will walk into a church and they evaluate it like it's a performance. I don't know if I like the sermon. Too many jokes. Not enough jokes. Didn't make me laugh. A crummy joke or whatever. Or didn't use enough scripture. Used way too much scripture. Way too confrontational. He should have been more laid back. I didn't like the music. Why'd they pick that song? I didn't, I didn't like the sound. I didn't like any. And so they come away with a list. I had someone one time write me and tell me. He says, I'll never be back to your church because your seats just aren't comfortable enough. I'm thinking, it's okay to think some things in your head. Don't say them out loud. I mean, I think we got, I mean, we even got cup holders, you know. I, but you know what? I've had people come and complain about the cup holders. Whoever heard of cup holders in church? I think we're the only one in Pueblo. I kind of like it. And so it gives you a place to put your Starbucks or your water or whatever, you Coke for me or whatever you need. And so they're like, whoever heard of people bringing food and drinks into the sanctuary and all that other stuff? And so you get into all this stuff. And so if we're not careful, and here's my heart, here's my concern, is that when you evaluate things based upon a performance, what, God, what did God teach you in that service? God wants to meet with you. I have done missions all over the world. And I've watched crazy stuff happen in services. I mean, I've, we've, I've been in open air buildings and lawn chairs and plastic chairs. Not enough chairs for everybody. People standing, sitting on the floor till your legs fall asleep. I've been in there, you know, when chickens are running in and goats are running in. You know, I have. And, and, and some of the instruments they use are just, just obnoxious and all that other stuff. And I've watched these people walk miles, some 5 and 10 and 15 miles just to worship God. And they're just thankful they're there. And my concern is, is when we get into this performance-driven to we're evaluating everybody else based upon a performance, that we miss, we miss what God has for us. See, the problem with criticism, and the problem is this, when you become critical, you miss what God has for you. You can't even see it. I had a man tell me last night, and I mean, last night we were just packed in this place, and we've been packed in all of our services. And he says, you know what? I've been in church all my life. He said, I'm going to tell you, this is the first experience I've ever had of a pure God movement. Amen. And he says, it is such a joy to be a part of this and see what God is doing in this place that it's not of man. The last thing is this. Truth requires compassion. This may be the one that we miss so many times, and Paul just hammers it home as, as he kind of closes. And, but we just got to understand, if you're going to confront someone, if you're going to speak truth into someone's life, it requires compassion. You can be right, but you can be wrong at the same time. You can be right in what you're saying. But you can be wrong in the way that you go about it, where restoration will never happen. You can't speak truth into someone's life angry. You can't speak truth into someone's life with a clenched fist. You can't speak truth into someone's life just trying to tear them down and destroy them and expect for them to receive it. That's what Paul's saying. Watch this, uh, verse 10. 
For this reason, or I'm sorry, verse, let's start at verse 9. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Here we go. Your restoration is what we pray for. Your restoration is what we pray for. It comes from a Greek word that they would use, the fishermen would use the Greek word, uh, this Greek word that's for restoration that would mean to take fishing nets that had been torn that were no longer useful and they would restore them, sew them back to usefulness again. And so Paul said, you, see, the goal of confrontation is restoration. That's the goal. It's not making the person feel bad. It's not proving your point. It's not making them feel bad enough, long enough, so that they understand how bad they really are. Like that works. Restoration or confrontation is with, with restoration. So it brings the relationship back to where it was before the offense happened. In verse 10. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you that when I come I may not have to be severe in use of my authority that the Lord has given me here, here, here's the reason for authority in life for the building up and the not tearing of down the reason that God gives you authority we're all leaders you may not realize this morning but, but every one of us is a, is a leader we may lead in different areas whether you're a mom whether you're a dad whether it's in the workplace whether it's in a school uh, whether it's in the community and you have people under you or working with you or whatever they were all leaders and, and Paul would say that the reason for leadership the reason for authority listen is for the building up not the tearing down see a lot of times we look at this issue of, of, of criticism or this issue of confrontation and our focus is of the tearing down you know I've heard people say all the time before you can build up you gotta tear down no that's not what the scripture says the reason that God gives you authority in life whether it's in the home whether it's in, this, in a school or parenting or whatever is this issue to build up and not tearing down with restoration in mind you ever offend someone and you have this confrontation but they don't want to restore the relationship I mean you can say I'm sorry please forgive me and like no I'm done I just, I just want to tear you down I want to destroy you but I don't want to restore the relationship I mean offenses happen you ever been with someone you better relationship with someone and you did offend them and you owned it and they said, I'm sorry, I don't want anything to do with you again. I'll never serve in ministry again. You'll never restore me to ministry again because of what you did to me. You'll never restore me to that relationship ever again because of what you did to me. I'll never, I'll never bring it back to what it was. See, that's not biblical confrontation. That's not biblical. We're human. We're flesh. We're going to offend each other. We're going to hurt each other. But biblical restoration is with bringing the relationship back to where it needs to be. That's why truth requires facts and not hearsay and not rumors and all this other stuff. Yeah, in relationships we need to be open and honest and, 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 and understand each other. But we deal in facts and not rumor and not gossip. And then he goes on and he says, he says, finally, brothers, Rejoice. Again, in case you didn't get it the first time, 
aim for restoration. It's a goal. It's not only what we pray for. The reason we pray for it is the goal. Our goal is to restore you. Our goal is to bring trust back into the relationship. Our goal is to come to a point to where we live life like we once did where there was trust. And Look at this. Comfort one another. How much comfort happens in your confrontation? Let me just tell you this. If you can't come to the point before you confront someone where you want restoration and you can comfort them and build them up, don't do it. You're not ready. You're not ready. It'll cause more problems. There's timing that's involved. I mean, just because there's an offense doesn't mean there's a need for an immediate rebuke. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. God waited nine months to send Nathan to confront him. He knew about it the whole time. There's timing that's involved. And if you, on your end, if your goal is not restoration, if your goal is you can't pray for it, if your goal is not to comfort them and try to work with them through this, then I'm just telling you, you're not ready for restoration. Don't do it. See, restoration is different than forgiveness. Restoration takes two parties. You can't reconcile. One party cannot reconcile. It takes two parties. It means two people to change mutually. That's why he goes on and says, watch this, agree with one another. Come to some agreement. There are so many people that confrontation happens and nothing's ever decided. And, and, and I, I think a lot of that is because of this. See, when you, when you look at what Paul says, you, you can see he's forward thinking. Uh, our prayer is for your restoration. Aim for restoration. For the, and then he talks about the building up and the not tearing down. So he's obviously looking to the future. A lot of times the reason that we don't reconcile, a lot of times the reasons that we don't uh, resolve conflict is because all of our discussion is about the past. All of our discussions about what you said, what you did to hurt me, your actions, your thought, and we stay there. That's not biblical reconciliation. Biblical re reconciliation is this, is a glance back to the past where there's some, I'll own it, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it, I shouldn't have said it. And then where the, most of the conversation that takes place is in the future, here's how we'll handle this. Let's agree together. Let's agree together that this is how we'll handle these situations. This is how we'll do life together. In the future, this is what we'll do. And so he says, so agree with one another. Live in peace. You can't live in peace with someone unless there's reconciliation, unless there's restoration. That's why biblical restoration is not this idea that I'm going to throw up on you and I'm going to tell you everything you did about me, but I'm not going to live in community with you. And then he says, and the, and the God of love and peace will be with you. You want the God of love and peace in your relationships and your situations? Have nothing between you and those. Walk in unity with one another. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you, and here he goes. Starts talking about the Trinity. Because 
That's the basis, right? The truth that we confront is his word. So we have to have an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And Paul says, you know, one last time, let me just talk to you about the Trinity, that, that Jesus Christ is God. He wasn't man that became God. He's not an archangel. Jesus Christ is God. He is fully God. Yeah, he took on the flesh. He took on the limitations of man. So, and, 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 but at the same time, he was still fully God. And he was still fully man. He's the Messiah. He's the perfect one. He's the one that takes away sin. And he says, watch this, the grace of the Lord Jesus God the Son and the love of God, God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, will be with you all. Understand who you are in Christ. Understand who He is. Understand who His, what His Word says. And live in unity. And live in unity with one another. And I understand there's, there's extremes on, on both ends of this spectrum. There's, there's, the, there's the extreme way out there that says I'll confront everything without love and without grace and all that stuff and just truth, truth, truth and they're so hurtful and they're so mean and they're so dividing. And then there's the, there's the other end of the spectrum to where the person says, you know, I'm all about grace and so... So there is really no truth, and so I'll just accept you. And so I understand both are dangerous. There's that, there's that story about a, a young man and, and girl, and they were dating, and so he finally asked her to marry him. And she says, I'll marry you when you got $10,000 in the bank. And so he said, okay. And so five years later, they're still dating, and so he goes to her. And he says, you know, boy, I'd really like to marry you. And, uh, you know, would you marry me? She says, well, how much money he got in the bank? He says, 20 bucks. She says, that'll do. And... Uh, there, there's just sometimes that, that, that we can go so long in, in situations in life that we'll just compromise all of our principles. And so I understand there's extreme on both sides, but Paul gives us where the line should be. Where we come to the place and we understand what biblical confrontation, biblical restoration is. And we understand it from a biblical perspective.